Welcome to Girl Power Pod, the podcast to inspire and motivate women to feel empowered to pursue their dreams. In this episode, we are talking to Saina Jalil, who believes that the only time we should be put in a box is the day that we die. She has a rich portfolio working in Asia to promote New Zealand trade and education. She's an MC, facilitator and commentator on topics such as diversity and economic development. In this episode, we are focusing on how to find belonging and the benefits diversity brings to our country. so much for doing this and taking your time and your busy life and maybe you can start with introducing yourself and tell me a bit about your background. Thank you very much for having me and and for this opportunity. Um, One of the things that I always say about myself is that I don't like boxes um, and it's I find it hard to put myself into one. So my background I I studied communications as my as my first um, degree and I worked in communications for a few years, um, and then I joined um, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Worked with them for a year in Auckland, looking after the food and beverage um, and education sectors globally in terms of our communication needs for those and the North Asia region. And then a role came up um, to move to Hong Kong and head up North Asia marketing and communications um, for NZT um, based in Hong Kong, but looking after China, Japan, um, South Korea, Taiwan. Um, and it was at a time when the New Zealand government was really investing strongly in the region. You know, North Asia was already our largest trading region, but the potential to be so much bigger in terms of impact. So it was a very, very exciting time to be there. Um, and the opportunity to really tell New Zealand's story beyond just, you know, clean green or a retirement village, as some people in those markets knew us as, or King of the Rings. That was the other one that I used to get, King of the Rings. Um, so, yeah, it was a hugely exciting opportunity um, to promote New Zealand as a trade and investment partner in, in North Asia and also to demystify the region for New Zealand businesses. Um, amazing opportunity to work on some really cool projects and once in a lifetime, you know, from a comms perspective, um, the New Zealand-China Free Trade Agreement signing, Shanghai Expo, opening up retail and information centres around the region. And as a, as a young person, that was, you know, it was like the time of my life. So I did that for about three and a half years and then um, studied international trade, did more work in that space, moved to Singapore as New Zealand's trade commissioner there, um, was based there for almost three and a half years, and then got headhunted uh, by Education New Zealand to look after first South Asia for them, based out of New Delhi, and then within a year, Southeast Asia as well. So my region kind of doubled overnight. Um, and some of the themes across both those roles, the one based out of Singapore and the one based out of India, were around you know the need to move up the value chain, the need to diversify, the need to move from uh, volume to value, which are things that we're still talking about today. Um, but again, you know, really exciting opportunities to you know, have a real impact on how New Zealand was viewed in those markets um, and an opportunity to tell our story and make a difference and do uh, innovative work that was um, awarded internationally 
um, also copied by the Australians, which is always a nice compliment. Um, and yeah, four years ago, I, I moved back to New Zealand. I left the public sector, joined a private consulting firm as a partner in Auckland, so seen at SHJ, uh, working in the area of reputation management, you know, organisational change, crisis communications. And two years ago, I moved from doing that uh, full-time to doing it as a consulting partner, basically to free myself up to do a whole bunch of other things that I'm also interested in. I missed Asia, so, you know, this way I've got the flexibility to have clients that work in that space. I'm doing a lot more work in the diversity and inclusion space. I have a number of boards that I sit on, um, mostly in the sort of education and economic development area, but also a not-for-profit board. Um, yeah, so a whole bunch of things. And then about a month ago, I, uh, together with uh, two friends of mine, launched an app, um, called Myoda. It's a mobile app which connects yoga um, and meditation teachers and students from around the world. Yeah, I saw that. Very yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so so that's me. And I suppose, you know, having lived and worked in the Pacific, in New Zealand, in Asia, um, I really consider myself to be a citizen of the world. Um, and all of my work focuses on, you know, how I can play a small part in in making the world a bit better for my fellow citizens. Great. So you mentioned earlier that you don't put people into boxes, which I love. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that and what that means? Yeah, I um, believe that the only time that we should be in a box is when we are dead. Um, you know, and sadly for many organizations, diversity and inclusion policies and practices are, are very much that, you know, box ticking exercises. And if you take me, for example, um, you know, if someone was looking to recruit me, you get a pretty darn good deal, right? Because I'll check several boxes for you. So I'm a younger person. I'm brown. I'm a migrant woman. You know, I identify with Asia as much as I do with the Pacific. Um, one of my colleagues in, in one of my previous roles once said to me that had I identified with the rainbow community and had a disability, I would have been a better poster child for diversity that, you know, there were a few boxes that I didn't quite tick. And I think we're in such a hurry to, to put people into boxes that we miss the intersectionality that arises, um, you know, from the multiple forms of diversity that each of us represent. Um, so, yeah, that to me really is about, you know, um, not putting people into boxes. Mm. Yeah. The one thing I love about New Zealand is the diversity of people and culture. What do you think we can do to harness the power of diversity better as a country? This is probably going to get me into trouble. <laughs> um, but many of us, I feel, are still paying lip service to diversity and inclusion um, and embracing it, you know, when it suits us rather than being a truly inclusive society. Um, I was at an Asia-focused event recently and, you know, you had uh, politicians and business leaders all talking about our Maori culture and how that was something that their Asian counterparts, so like world leaders, you know, based in Asia and business leaders, how it was something that was so memorable for them. And that's what they remembered about New Zealand. You know, and as I said, you know, I spent 10 years in Asia promoting New Zealand trade, investment and education. And the thing that really sets us apart on the international stage is our Maori culture and heritage, right? And we are very quick to um, pick it up offshore when we see a commercial benefit. But if you look at the statistics around the Maori population in New Zealand, they are overrepresented in all the negative statistics, right? In the current environment, uh, and if you look at the impact of COVID-19, Maori and Pacific communities are the ones that are going to fare the worst uh, as a result. 
We talk about doing more business with China and Asia, and then you look at the Human Rights Commission that has just launched a new campaign because of the rise in reported complaints of, um, you know, increase in discrimination, you know, increase in racism against Chinese and Asian communities in New Zealand. One in four in our country has a disability, but how well are our workplaces, you know, and our um, businesses equipped to meet accessibility needs of people? One in four of us weren't born here, you know, including the two of us, yeah, you know, okay. and, in, and in Auckland, um, that's more than more than 40% of the people here weren't born in Auckland. Um, but how good are we at recognising international education skills and experiences when we're recruiting people or when we're promoting people? It's election year and our elected representatives think that it's, you know, perfectly acceptable to discriminate against migrants and some ethnic groups and sort of say, oh, well, it's just electioneering. You know, you have to wonder not just about them um, because their terms will be limited, but you have to wonder about the people who actually vote for them uh, and that, you know, the people that they're appealing to when they make statements like that. So while we are a diverse society in a sense that we have different people and cultures, we have, you know, more than 213 ethnicities and 160 languages, um, in my view, we are best managing differences uh, rather than truly embracing diversity. Mm. What do you think, uh, or what would you say are the three key things to really embrace diversity and inclusion? Firstly, I think it's about self-awareness. So acknowledging that each of us is unique and that that isn't a threat. Um, Recognising those differences, and that can be along the lines of, you know, the most common ones are, are gender, race, ethnicity, but there's also sexual orientation, you know, physical ability, age, beliefs, socioeconomic background, um, education. And, and, you know, that list goes on. And checking ourselves and others in terms of biases, right? Because we all have them. Just because I'm a brown woman doesn't mean that I don't hold stereotypes, right? We all do. Um, and then stop viewing diversity from the lens of them and us. Um, I think as soon as you sort of label someone as they or them, you are othering them, right? And and they isn't us. Um, secondly, listen and learn. You know, I take, um, I'd suggest that we all take an active interest in learning about people who are different from us. You know, if you kind of look at your friend circle or you look at your colleagues, how many of them are actually different from you? Um, how many of them have different backgrounds from you? And, you know, their upbringing was different. Their worldview is different. Um, involve them in activities. Empower them to contribute to decisions. You know, make sure they feel respected and, and valued and like they are making a contribution. Um, and thirdly, call out behaviours that um, in actions that don't support, you know, a diverse and inclusive culture or diverse and inclusive society. Because when we don't call out those behaviours, actually we are perpetuating them and, and we are uh, assisting um, racism, discrimination, all of these things to continue. Mm. And uh, what do you think is the biggest opportunity in diversity and inclusion? So diversity is a reality. Okay, it's, you know, whether people like it or not, it's here and it's here to stay, right? So you might as well just accept that piece. Um, and the benefits from an economic, social, cultural, environmental perspective, you know, they're all well documented. Data shows us um, that teams, organizations, you know, that are diverse perform better. They are more profitable. They have much greater employer brands. They have much better reputation, right? All of those things. Mm. So that's all well proven. What we are missing is that inclusion and belonging piece, yeah? And that comes from treating people with respect 
um, showing them that that dignity and that value that we want to be accorded ourselves. And I think if all of us thought about, you know, how we were treating others in the sense of how we would like to be treated, um, then that's just a first step in moving towards building a more inclusive society. Yeah. Yeah. On an individual or organizational or legalization level, what would you recommend um, to lead change in a positive direction for equality? So I grew up in Fiji. It's a fairly diverse society, probably not quite as diverse as New Zealand. You know, certainly wasn't when, when I grew up, but, you know, diverse nonetheless. And we saw differences um, in many forms, but we saw that as normal. You know, so um, I'm I'm a Muslim, but I went to a Christian primary school and I read the Bible and learned Bible verses well before I learned, you know, surahs from the Quran. We would, um, we celebrated Diwali with just as much gusto as, as we would Eid. You know, our friends came from different ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds. We had, you know, some parents who were highly educated and in professional roles and others were laborers, some were unemployed, some were entrepreneurs. So at the end of the day, um, whether you look at the legislative level or the organizational level or the personal level, or I mean the individual level, this is really about people, right? And that's what it comes down to. Uh, people set the rules, written and run, unwritten. They set the code of behavior and what is acceptable or unacceptable, not just by what they do, but also by what they don't do. Um, legislation to prevent discrimination has been in force for many years. Um, in New Zealand, but growing diversity, with growing diversity, we're also seeing growing discrimination. So, you know, yeah, laws are great, but laws don't change hearts and minds. Education does, you know, education in the sense of what we are learning ourselves, but also what we teach our children. Children aren't born aware of stereotypes, right? They learn that from the environment in which they live, where they grow up. So for me, it's really, and you know, as a mother, I have two children. I think it's really important Uh, you know, we think carefully about the example that we set for our kids, including throwaway comments that we make, right? Yeah. And how do you have any tips on how you reflect on your own kind of behavior to to not go on that path when you throw, you know, the stereotypes or... So it is those things. It is, um, you know, even when you think something is a joke, that can be quite offensive um, to some people, you know, or you get the... It's it's the throwaway lines, you know, oh, you've done really well for yourself. And the subtext is you've done really well for a young brown woman. That shouldn't be a surprise. We should expect, you know, all people to be able to reach their full potential, you know, regardless of their background or who they are. Um, you know, we have um, certain organisations, you know, when they have equity measures around internship opportunities for, say, you know, Māori or Pacific students, um, I know that in one particular case, one of those individuals was told that, oh, you are the Māori charity case. I mean, that is just, you know, it's, it was made as a throwaway comment, not trying to be offensive or anything, but it's deeply offensive. Um, or, you know, you've, you've done really well for a rugby player or something like that, you know, like for, I'm talking about younger people, not obviously yeah. obliques or whatever. So I think, yeah, I think those things are really important. I think observing ourselves in terms of what our first impressions are when we meet people and whether that is based on biases that we might hold mm -hmm. um, and, and calling ourselves out, you know, and then doing that for our friends and colleagues as well if they're not able to see those, just simple everyday things. Yeah. 
And you mentioned earlier too about creating a workplace of belonging. What would you recommend for a workplace or a leader to, like what would they have to do to do that? I think, for, as I said earlier, you know, I mean, some of the simple things are around self-awareness. Yeah. Um, if a leader is not aware of their own biases, um, is not willing to listen and learn, they are going to struggle to build uh, a workplace that is inclusive and where people feel they belong. Leaders need to take time to listen to what their people are telling them and to create an environment where people feel safe to share what it is that they want to say. Um, and part of that comes from an environment where people can see that what they're sharing is acted upon, that you know there aren't any repercussions for saying that something isn't working or doesn't work for them, that people feel like if, if they share things openly that they will be heard, um, that what they've shared is going to be acted upon. It's simple things, right? I mean, the one that I talk about often is, is something as simple as a morning tea. You know, when you are providing a morning tea, it's a it's done to try and bring people together. But if you're not catering for the dietary needs of everyone around their table, then people feel excluded. Um, and, you know, I I'm, um, know of many people who are either vegetarian or gluten-free or whatever, and the staple morning tea in New Zealand is sausage rolls, you know. So people go there and it's like, okay, this is for the people who have sausage rolls. Um, this is not for me, you know. So it's just the little things like that make a big difference around how people feel right. Um, holding uh, really important meetings or events on days that happen to be, you know, significant cultural um, events for some parts of the team uh, or measuring everyone's approach to interviews and performance reviews uh, through a Western construct, you know, so... Pacific cultures, you won't get eye contact. You won't get people singing their own praises. That's not how it's done, you know. Um, you, from a very early age, you're told to, you know, respect people who are elder than you. You respect authority. You don't look, you know, you don't make eye contact. Um, and your success is never about you individually. It's about the collective. So someone coming from that background going into an interview is not going to be, you know, singing their own praises and being, you know, um, sharing all the things that they've done because it's not just a you know for them it's not just about what they achieved um whereas if an interviewer is not aware of that you're going to think that this person hasn't actually achieved much um yeah. and that's not true so being mindful of our systems and um whether or not they are flexing enough you know to meet everyone's needs yeah. when with covid we've seen flexible work practices right um before then there was so much challenge for particularly um, working mothers, you know, wanting to have flexible hours. It was almost you felt like your employer didn't trust you, yeah. you know. And then COVID happens and everyone has to work from home and then people suddenly realise, well, actually this can be done and people can still be productive and, and have a life. Exactly. And still, you know, manage to get their work done and we're going through a crisis at the same time. Yeah. So they're, they're really simple things. to do, And a lot of that comes down to respect and trust. Yeah. Um, and that takes time to build. Yeah. If you could um, look into the future, what what's the one thing that you would like to see? If there's one thing that I'd like us all to be able to do, um, that is respecting each other. You know, I think that that is fundamental. When we don't show that respect to our fellow human beings, that's when we start seeing problems, you know. Um, so, yeah.
that to me is very important. Yeah. Uh, what opportunities do you think COVID brings to New Zealand, but also to the wider world? I think um, COVID-19 has been a real reality check in terms of what's really important, you know, what matters and what should matter. Um, it's also demonstrated just how interconnected the world is, right? I mean, we we feel fortunate and blessed that, you know, we, we live in an island nation that is sort of slightly separated from all of these things, but we also got COVID because we are connected. Um, so this, to me, this isn't just about a, a new normal or a reset or every other phrase that has become a cliche out there. Um, this is about saying, what have we learned? You know, what do we want our future to look like? And what are we going to do to build that? In a very deliberate manner, um, we sort of seem to have arrived at this state just meandering along, you know, doing our own thing. But this is about being really deliberate around putting all people and the planet at the heart of everything that we do. And in the New Zealand context, I think we've got a, a brilliant opportunity um, to learn from te ao Māori because so much of what COVID has highlighted is embedded in the Māori worldview, right, around values, around the importance of, of kinship uh, and togetherness, guardianship and, and sustainability. You know, concepts such as whanaungatanga, um, you know, kaitiakitanga, um, kotahitanga, you know, just to name a few. This is something for us to embrace here in New Zealand, but also something that is uniquely um, New Zealand that we can take to the world and share with the rest of the world. Um, so to me, that's, you know, that's a really special opportunity that we have. Oh, great. Um, what does equality mean to you? So the textbook definition, obviously, is that, you know, everyone is equal with the same status and rights and responsibilities. But we all know that while in theory all people are equal, in practice some are more equal than others, right? Mm. And as an example, um, there are now more women uh, CEOs and more women in governance roles than we've had in the past. But if you look at the representation of Maori, Pacific or Asian women um, in leadership and governance role, it you know remains woefully low. Pacific women continue to earn significantly less than every other group of women and obviously men. So and and you know those who are in leadership positions often are put into roles that are specifically related to their community. So you know you're the head of Maori business, for example. Um, as if their skills and their knowledge and experience doesn't have wider relevance. So in my view, um, we can't be celebrating the gains for women until all women are enjoying the benefits of those gains. We cannot celebrate gains in society when so many parts of our society are still marginalized. So equality to me is about fairness and justice. It's about doing the right thing. What does leadership mean to you? Leadership to me is quite simply about growing people. You know, inspiring, motivating, energizing, empowering people um, to realize their full potential. And it's about creating more leaders, you know, and I've been very blessed um, throughout my career to have had good leaders to, to work for and learn from um, and to be a leader who had the opportunity to create more leaders. And I think that that's what, you know, yeah, that to me is what leadership is about. And you became a leader quite early on too. How do you think that has like reflected on on your, the way you see leadership? Actually, I, I think about you know this is going back in time now. Um, <laughs> when I was sixteen, I had the so in Fiji, I had the opportunity to represent the youth of the South Pacific at a United Nations conference in The Hague, um, 
And that felt like a huge responsibility. You know, this was like my first international conference. I was only 16, traveling overseas by myself, you know, for the first time. Um, and at that event, so this particular event became like the precursor to what is the Sustainable Development Goals now. So you had a youth forum, you had an NGO forum, and then you had um, sort of a parliamentary forum, which had all the ministers for health from around the world. And the youth group, so we had youth leaders from around the world. We were creating our own white paper that we were going to use to lobby the health ministers for um, things that we wanted, you know, for the young people in their countries to have. And being in an environment like that um, where you had, you know, like really senior people, but you had direct access to them in a way and you were able to to lobby them, if you like, for want of a bit of wood. I think, you, you know, you could, like, it struck me that it didn't really matter how young or old you were. If you wanted to make a difference, you could, yeah. you know. Um, there are many ways in which you can demonstrate leadership. You know, and I look at my children, you know, I've got one in high school, one in primary school, and I look at, you know, them, I look at their friends and I think of the ideas and things that I come up with. It's demonstrating leadership. Um, my son um, and some friends last year, you know, they got the whole school together. They organized a Mufti Day and, you know, fundraising initiative. They raised more than $1,000 for Starship, you know, um, and got some sponsorship from some retailers, took some books and toys for the kids in Starship. No one suggested that they should do that. They just saw a need and, and they took that responsibility and decided to do it. So... There's lots of different ways in which I think leadership manifests in yeah. our view. Often we think when we think of leaders, we think of, you know, political leaders or we think of business leaders, maybe yeah. community leaders. But there's an opportunity for every one of us to be a leader in our own lives in, yeah. in different ways. Yeah. What do you think we can do to get more women into leadership position and not get stuck in the middle management? It feels like quite common for women to get stuck there. I think make some space for them at the top, right? Yeah, exactly. As, um, and, and, and put in place some some ladders and, and support systems that will help them get there. I mean, one of the things for women is that, you know, women's salaries and their likelihood for promotion fall when they become mothers. But pay bias doesn't affect fathers. In fact, it's been proven that men who have children actually earn more than men who don't. Uh, and as if that's not enough, women can also sometimes be seen, often by other women as well, as being overly ambitious or not committed enough, you know, to their to their employer, to their work. Um, so I think there's there's a lot that can be done in that space just around, you know, not pa not passing judgment, but providing support, you know, providing those networks where uh, women can be supported, not just by other women, but by, you know, everyone else in the organization um, to help them grow. The other thing I think uh, and I know that, you know, a lot of us women are guilty of this, is that we don't put our hands up for roles until we think we can meet every single yeah. criteria that's there on the job description. Um, if that was the case, many male politicians wouldn't be leaders of their country, right? Um, and, and so I think we've we've got to sort of say to ourselves and recognize that no one goes into a job knowing everything about it, right? And there's an opportunity to learn and grow. Yeah. So we need to get better at putting our hand up, but also we need the system around us to be more supportive for, um, you know, women's growth. So can you tell me a bit about your biggest um, failure and what you learned from that? There are many. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't quite sure, you know, when, when I thought about that question, I wasn't quite sure how to decide which <laughs> should which be one? the biggest. <laughs> um, but if I 
sort of think about it in the sense of what had the biggest impact on my life, it would probably be a personal one rather than a professional one. And without going into the details of it, I think the learnings there um, are that when things go wrong, as they no doubt will from time to time in life, you know, it's very easy to move into a victim mentality. And then you react from a place of hurt, uh, of anger, sometimes even fear. And it took me a while to appreciate and accept that, you know, true empathy requires us to put ourselves into someone else's shoes to to see the world from, from their perspective, um, to try and understand where they're coming from. You don't have to agree with their position, but actually recognizing where they, they're coming from. Um, and also just, you know, realizing that even when things don't work out quite in the way that you want them to, uh, or you'd hoped that they would, there's still an opportunity to try and work a solution that is, you know, mutually beneficial for all parties. And, and that applies um, in a personal setting and also in a professional setting. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, how would you define success? For me, success is the, the happiness that comes from being able to make a difference in people's lives. It's just as simple as that. <laughs> Great. What advice would you give to your former self? I'd say enjoy the journey. I think when, when we are younger, we're in such a hurry, you know, to, to move to the next thing. You know, where's the next thing? What am I going to do next? That you really forget to enjoy the experience of the present. And I look back at some of the opportunities that I've had in my life, um, you know, and some of, the, some of those were like huge opportunities that came very early in my life. And I just wish I'd, I'd spend the time really soaking it up more yeah. rather than in being in such a hurry to just, you know, deliver, 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 and then you're moving on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you enjoy it when you can. Do you have a quote that you live by? Or? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a combination from Gandhi and Rumi. So, you know, Gandhi said, if, you can, um, if, you could, if we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. And Rumi's was... Um, Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I am wise, so I'm changing myself. So it's it's that thing about, you know, be the change you want to see. Yeah. Well, that was all, all I had. Thank you so much. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Girl Power Pod. My name is Susanne Axelson. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe and please give it a five-star rating. You can also follow Girl Power Pod on Instagram. It would really mean a lot to me to hear your thoughts on today's episode. So please email girlpowerpod at gmail.com. I would love to get your feedback and I respond to every email. In the next episode, we are talking to Sonia Williams, co-founder of ShareSys, an app that helps you invest money in the stock market, both in New Zealand and the US. We talked about the challenges of COVID and remote working, what builds a strong work culture, and how they managed to launch on the US stock market in the middle of a pandemic. Make sure to subscribe to not miss out.